Just a couple of things to talk about before we get started. First, if you've ever longed to swathe your body in a less than or equal t-shirt, now's your chance. They're available now at teespring.com slash LTOE. But it's likely that this will be the only run of less than or equal shirts because the show's coming to an end. Episode 100 is our last planned episode. To commemorate the occasion, we'll make it a questions and answers show. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, tweet it at Aline, that's A-L-E-E-N, or email Aline at lessthanorequal.com. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I am joined by Thursday Bram. Thursday, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you. Thursday, who are you? So I'm a writer. I've been writing about technology for over a decade. I I started my first blog in high school, which was a long time ago, and Maybe, maybe we don't have to discuss quite how long ago. <laughs> I understand the feeling. Um, but I've written for everybody from CNET to GigaOM to Entrepreneur Magazine. Wow. So how did you go from a personal blog to writing professionally? Uh, so it was kind of a long journey. Um, I actually did freelance writing even as far back as high school. Uh, I knew going through uh, college that I wasn't really cut out for a lot of the traditional nine to fives. So I started pursuing freelance writing pretty, pretty heavily. And at that point, not a lot of people were working with like online blogs or making that sort of their specialty. So I just doubled down on uh, on technology, and it worked out for me. So what areas of tech are you most interested in right now? So that's kind of evolved with my writing career. Uh, so at one point, it was all productivity apps, and how can I get the most out of every spare second? Um, and then I sort of moved into uh, looking at some of the more technical aspects. And these days, um, one of my big areas of interest is how different tools work for different people. So for instance, um, going back to some of those productivity apps that I used to be very, very excited by, um, they tend to work for a very specific audience, often that matches very precisely whoever actually created the tool. Yes. So like a lot of uh, project management tools or uh, things like Trello or Asana, um, people recommend using them for like home life too. But any parent can tell you that a Trello board is not going to fix all of their productivity (laughs) needs. Right. Yeah, it's super interesting to me. I mean, it's kind of an ongoing joke, I think, that uh, everybody's first app will be like a productivity app, a to-do list or or, or something because, you know, and and it's, it's a joke, but really it's like everybody, it, it's so personal, you know, and people use things like OmniFocus and, oh, I don't know, 
to do and Wonderlist and all of these different things. And it's like, none of that works for me. So I'm trying to figure out what's, what works for me and maybe I'll write an app for it because, <laughs> you know, it's all, it's all just so different for everybody. And it to a surprising degree, I think. Oh yeah. It's, it's very personal. Like how we decide to do things, I think is one of the most personal decisions that we make about technology. Like even just where we're going to store our to-do lists, like, are you going to keep it on your phone and always have it with you? Is it just going to live on your laptop so that you can get a break from it sometimes? Are you, I, I, I've been experimenting with paper going, you know, going back to uh, centuries old tech to use it because uh, sometimes it gets a little overwhelming digitally. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I I actually do live out of my paper journal. Um, I I write constantly about technology and I use paper. Well, it's kind of a nice break in it. It honestly isn't. There's science saying that it, it uses different brain muscles. I think that's technically how they put it. It'll use different brain muscles and, you know, you write differently on paper, like structurally and, or at least I do, I shouldn't say you, I guess, but I write differently when I write on paper from like a structural, how do, how do I put sentences together and what words can I think of standpoint? Absolutely. So part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show is that we met just a few days ago, as we record this, um, at XOXO, which is kind of a festival conference thing in Portland. And I became aware, well, I was told of a project that you were undertaking, which I was kind of aware, but I didn't know the stage it was in. And that'll all become clear after you explain it to <laughs> tell everybody <laughs> what, what you're doing right now. And, um, and then I'll, I'll, clarify so it makes a little bit more sense. Okay, yeah. Uh, So right now I'm working on a style guide about inclusive language. Uh, I'm working with Recompiler Media, which publishes the Recompiler, which is a quarterly uh, magazine about feminism and technology. So I'm really pleased to be able to work with them. Um, But the, the general idea behind the Responsible Communication Style Guide, which is what we're calling it, uh, is that not a lot of us have training in how to use language inclusively. So I went through like a traditional journalism school background. Um, I learned to love my AP style guide, my associated press style guide sometimes still makes it into like, uh, my carry on for, uh, travel because I know that I need it that often. But there's not something comparable that really guides us through this word choice is more appropriate than this word choice when we're talking about something like race or religion or health. Uh, Most of the guides are very general. Um, And then some special uh, style guides do exist, but they're very fragmented. So, for instance... Um, GLAD has a media guide on how to write about some specific issues around sexuality. Uh, so does the National uh, Journalists, National Association of Journalists uh, for, oh, I'm sorry, I'm screwing up the name. 
uh, National Association of Lesbian and Gay Journalists has a style guide as well. Um, they, they don't actually match up, interestingly. There's some differences between how they suggest covering different things, uh, which, which makes this project, I think, a little bit more necessary. Mm-hmm. But we're reaching this point where we need to be able to write inclusively, avoid some of the incredible mishaps that certain uh, publishers and companies have already made moving forward. And we need an educational guide to do that. So that's, that's the idea behind the style guide. So let's talk a little bit more because a lot of people don't know what a style guide is. Mm-hmm. Um, so can we talk about what, what is a style guide? Sure. So uh, the AP Style Guide is one of the standards. Um, You might have also heard of the Chicago Manual of Style or uh, half a dozen different ones. A lot of different groups have their own. But basically, uh, a style guide at its core is a list of how to do certain things with with your writing or your other communications. So which word choice is recommended? Uh, how to write a job title. Those sorts of things are very standard. Um, As a, for instance, the idea of whether or not to capitalize the word internet is a choice of style. And up until fairly recently, the AP Style Guide said internet should be capitalized. Um, They they have now decided to agree with the rest of us that it shouldn't be. Um, But those sorts of little pieces of style are are key in making sure that your writing and your other communications are consistent. Um, So for instance, if you're running a magazine or a blog or um, something like that, you want to make sure that you always write internet the same way, whether it's with a capital I or with a lowercase I, because people start paying attention if you keep changing things up on them. And instead of paying attention to the message you're trying to get across, they pay attention to, well, they keep changing these little style details. Is there a reason for that? Is there a hidden meaning? Should I be paying attention to that? So uh, having that sort of consistency helps make your overall message a lot clearer. Uh, It also means that you already have an answer for when you try to decide, should should I capitalize certain words in a title? Um, are, are and and of capitalized when, when you're writing a title? And that means that you don't have to think about it. So it makes it so much easier to just get on with the process of writing something and getting it out there because you don't have to make those little decisions over and over and over again. Yes. Style guides are so, so important for consistency and branding. I mean, if nothing else. Um, So let's talk about how you got the idea to even undertake the project because I've known about it as kind of a digital project for a little while, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was like, Oh, Hey, there's this Kickstarter. So why did you decide to, to, I was going to say change focus, but why did you choose to undertake uh, the added complexity of producing like a physical book in an ebook and hiring editors 
and uh, and more diverse writers and that kind of thing instead of just keeping it as a like online only type of project? Sure. Well, first off, I have been thinking about this project for over a decade. Um, I have made some of the mistakes that I want to use this style guide to avoid. So it's been a project that's been on my mind for quite a while. The the reason that um, we're doing the Kickstarter is to cover two specific types of costs. Uh, the cost of doing the physical printing and the cost of paying our contributing editors. And we could get away without a print copy, but the reality is that most people who use style guides already look for print versions because it's just so much easier to have that print version on your desk. If you're writing on paper, if you're not writing at your main computer, you can still easily grab your reference copy and use it. Um, I know a lot of writers who, who all of their reference materials are still print copies, and we definitely want to make sure that they have the tool in the format that they need. Now, when it comes to the, the editors that we're working with, um, to put it just straight out there, uh, I'm a white girl from the Midwest. Like, there are certain topics that I just don't have the right experience to create this guide about. Uh, writing about race, for instance. I, I have been asked to write about race by some of the publications I have worked with. Um, I'm not ever sure that that's entirely a good idea because my perspective is so limited. Um, but whenever I'm thinking about an article like that, about something that I don't have subject matter expertise in, I want to be able to go to somebody who is the expert, who not only has the lived experience of uh, the topic that I'm writing about, but also an experience with the, the activism behind it, the person who can tell me, all right, this term is the recommended term, this other group uses this term for these reasons. So, for instance, um, when writing about race, there's, there's a lot of confusion, honestly, um, even just the question of when is African-American the preferred term, when is Black the preferred term, all of these details. Um, and I don't, I don't have the knowledge of the history of the, the evolution of these terms to write the guide myself. So we wanted to bring in the, the right people to write these sections, the people who can give a more full picture of it. Um, <clears throat> and as for paying our editors, I, I've been a freelancer for, for years at this point. The idea of not paying somebody for, for their work is pretty abhorrent to me. <laughs> yeah, you have died of exposure. Work for exposure, oh. you have died of exposure. Yeah. Oh, so many times. Yeah. I think I, I love I love everything you just said because um I don't know, I feel like as as a white woman, um, mm -hmm. cisgender straight white woman, uh, it's only been really in the last couple of years that I've been able to kind of take a step back and realize that even though I am an empathetic person and I work very hard at being empathetic, I still don't know it all. And I still am not going to understand a lot of struggles um, and perspectives 
that other people can bring to the table um, in a way that means I can represent them in any way, you know? And uh, I, I love when I see people who are like, oh yeah, that's not a thing I'm qualified to do. Let's bring people who are qualified in because I don't think it happens enough. Absolutely. Um, I actually was discussing this project with somebody at XOXO who hadn't heard about it. And this person is a person of color. And they they heard me start like my my uh, my little elevator pitch about why I think this is important. And I could just see the look on their face as I mentioned the word race of, oh, no, another white woman like here to tell me everything I'm doing wrong about race. And then I'm like, no, no, right. trust me, we're getting somebody who actually has lived experience with this to write. <laughs> we're, n- we're not like doing this with without uh, thought. <laughs> Which is awesome and so unusual. <laughs> and, uh, I appreciate. So thank you for, for, for doing that because uh, I don't know. It, I, I struggle because I try to have conversations with people like, hey, maybe you want a person of color to write about this issue affecting people of color. And they don't, they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. It just, it, they don't get it. And I don't know. Yeah. I've, I've, I've done a lot of time working with, startups on like their their marketing blogs and the idea of um reaching out and getting diverse writers is still a little foreign (laughs) it's still it's still a hard idea and I get the difficulty in finding just one blogger who you trust with your brand but um Whenever you're trying to appeal to to a wide audience, you need to be as inclusive as possible in how you're promoting to that audience as well. Yep. So your Kickstarter, you're asking for twenty thousand dollars, mm-hmm. and you're currently, as I'm staring at this, at six thousand four hundred ninety-one. So you're, I don't know, a little over a quarter of the way there. Yeah, we're at about thirty-five percent now. Okay. 35. That's, that's well over a quarter. That's pretty awesome. Um, and I, dear listeners, I contributed $35. I encourage you to do the same and get, get a physical copy of the style guide for the, the reasons that Thursday kind of talked about. Um, if nothing else, you can read like a little section at a time and learn a little bit more, even if you're not a writer, which I think is a pretty cool thing. So what will that $20,000 cover? So that $20,000 covers uh, the, the costs of paying our contributing uh, editors, um, as well as writers of specific articles within the guide. Um, it covers our printing costs, um, and it's going to cover some of the, the costs of the online edition as well, because we also have um, an online uh, version. Um, so hosting, all that sort of stuff. Uh, it's covering our layout. Our designer is also getting paid. There's the only people who aren't like getting uh, compensated for all the time they put in are myself uh, and Audrey Eschreit, who is the publisher of the recompiler. Um, so our writers are getting paid, our designers getting paid, all of that. And that's mostly what we're covering with the Kickstarter. Uh, we've got a ton of the research already done. Um, it's just a question of getting our editors together and getting them working on the project. And 
uh, we'll be announcing our editors shortly. Uh, we're just confirming, I think, the last two. Um, and I'm, I'm very excited about, about those editors. Uh, these are people who I have wanted to work with for years on a project. Um, but the, the costs of this sort of project really aren't that high when you think about it. Um, it's, it's purely um, creating the content is the, the high cost. Uh, and since we are in a lot of ways starting from scratch on that content, we have to, to put the time in there, but everything else is kind of a solved problem for us. Uh, the process of creating an ebook is something both Audrey and I are, are familiar with. We've both done print editions of things in the past, so that's pretty easy for us. Um, and we have a, a pretty active community, so our marketing costs aren't substantial. So, so yeah, most of the money goes straight towards creating the actual content. Yay. So what are, do you have stretch goals planned out? I think we talked about this a little bit, but if you get over $20,000, what can you do with additional funds? Right. So our first stretch goal is actually increasing pay rates for our editors. You might sense a theme here um, to something that's a little closer to industry standards. Um, we're also talking about um, stretch goals around different sections. So um, right now we're committed to doing five topics, which are race, religion, uh, gender, sexuality, and health and wellness. Um, so those topics we are definitely doing. Uh, we're talking about, as a stretch goal, doing a government supplement for people who are covering uh, the election and all of these uh, very, very complicated political issues yeah. that we are dealing with right now. Um, so that's one of our stretch goals. Uh, our, our big stretch goal, like if we massively overfund, uh, is doing an API for the, the data of the guide. So, um, this is, this is the thing that I would really be excited to have because that means that if we wanted to build a linter for somebody who's writing about these sorts of things that could make suggestions as they're writing, um, that would be just amazing to me. So uh, just to, to clarify a little bit, uh, if somebody's a programmer and they're, they're writing code, they might use a piece of software called a linter, which make suggestions about um, how they format what they're writing. It, uh, it, it enforces the, the style guide uh, that the code needs. Uh, and there's no real reason why we can't have linters for uh, non-programming writing as well. So um, like spell check is kind of a very low level linter if you've got that turned on in your word processor. Grammar. I'm thinking of Microsoft Word's mm -hmm. grammar check of Yep. Your, I don't know if they still do that, but it was not, not a good thing, but um, that's absolutely incredible and not something that I had thought about as, as a potential stretch goal is making it so it's right there in, mm -hmm. in all up in your space, like in the <laughs> best possible way. Um, because it, it's, for a print or ebook edition, you have to make a conscious choice. Mm -hmm. And what happens often is that people are are using uninclusive language, I guess, 
and they don't know it. And if you don't know that you're doing something that isn't recommended, you don't know to go check and see Mm -hmm. if you should, should or could be doing things differently. So I love the idea of having something in software that is a little reminder like, oh, hey, or, you know, learn a new thing. Oh, hey, this isn't really, you know, absolutely. I think you should, should maybe write. Yeah. And I think we're also coming at it from this perspective of we know what tool we need, but we don't know what tool other people need. So by creating an API um, and making that available, people can build the tools that make sense in their workflow, in their projects, in their uh, media. So making that accessible will will really just be thrilling to me, honestly. So. Where did the original idea for for a responsible communication style guide come from? It's been something you've been thinking about a long time, but but can you remember what your um, aha moment was with it? Sure. So um, the the real aha moment for me was right after I had gotten out of journalism school, after I had been freelancing for a little while full-time, and I wrote this article that I did an email interview for. And the person that I was interviewing was named Chris. Uh, So as I'm writing the article, I'm like, he said such and such thing. And I get this email right after it goes live. Oh, um, I mean, the article looks great, but Chris is short for Christine. And I'm like, oh, crap. What did I just do? Like, I felt horrible and I couldn't even imagine how bad that felt for the person that I interviewed. But nowhere in any of my journalism classes had anybody ever said, oh, by the way, when you're doing an interview, here's how to ask <laughs> what pronouns to use, what uh, identity your, your interviewee uh, has. So right away, I was like, I need, I need to have like a specific question that I can ask. How do I ask this question without being insensitive, without being a jerk about it without making somebody feel uncomfortable. Um, And there was basically nothing at that point. Uh, Since then, I have a couple of like standard questions I now ask as a result, but I had to develop those myself. There was no education around it. Um, And that's really what got me thought got me started thinking about how do we create this sort of material for other journalists. So, yeah, I've definitely had those moments, too, where I've misstepped and been like, oh, crap, you know, thank you for telling me. And, you know, how what can I do to make this better? Um, Why was now the right time for you to get started? So there were a couple of factors. Um, First of all, I'm on something of sabbatical from my freelancing right now. So I actually had the time to start putting into it. Uh, We're also at the, the year anniversary of the launch of the recompilers. So uh, Audrey was ready to start exploring uh, doing book publishing through the recompiler because she's she's got the magazine side pretty well uh, down now. Um, but also because 
I'm seeing a lot of articles and information uh, going up online that could really use this guide. And every so often there's some sort of uproar. Uh, during the Olympics, for instance, there was an Olympic athlete from Chicago credited uh. as Chicago Bears wife wins Olympic medal. Um, which <laughs> there was a little bit of an uproar about. Yeah. Uh, but like the, the the publications that did so like apologized, corrected everything, but there's always the, the potential for that to happen again. So um, you you had uh, Karanda Adair on uh, previously, and I don't know. Um, if you're familiar with Karanda's statement on uh, screwing up, but to to put it simply, everybody screws up, then you improve, and then you do better. Like, that's the important thing. You apologize, you do better. Uh, and this guide, I think, is a key component to doing better because uh, publications probably have now marked down maybe we shouldn't refer to Olympic athletes as other people's spouses. Maybe we should, you know, give them an identity of their own. But what happens when it's a politician or somebody with a different uh, job title? You, you've got to you've got to know that their style guide hasn't been updated to reflect everybody. It's only been updated to reflect basically Olympic athletes. Right. So doing better means having a wider uh, educational approach to this so that people can understand what is going on, uh, what they need to do to do better across the board, and then have a resource to go back to. I am so excited to get this in my hands um, because I think there's there's just so much for me to learn for, you know, even though I've been doing, I don't know, advocacy and talking to a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds for a while, uh, there's so much I don't know. And so much, again, that I don't know I don't know. And having something to kind of help me uh, diversify my thinking more is really, really exciting. And the fact that I'll be able to throw it in a bag and take it around with me and, you know, like I said, pull it out and just read it, I think mm -hmm. is really cool. I think it's really, really exciting as opposed to, you know, a wiki or something, um, which requires a little bit more intentionality on a, uh, a device where you can, you have the whole world in your hands. Absolutely. And I mean, there's always a place for different types of resources. Uh, like wikis are incredibly valuable, but considering how many different people we have with different approaches to learning, uh, different educational backgrounds that they're starting from, I think that we can we can continue to make space for more resources. The more resources, the better, honestly, from my perspective. I totally agree. We'll get back to our conversation with Thursday in just a moment, but let's talk about this episode's sponsor, Agenda Minder. If you're like me, you have more meetings now than ever before, and you know that the best meetings are the result of planning. Agenda Minder is an app for your Mac designed to do just that, help you plan so that your meetings will be better. It's a personal productivity tool that helps you plan what you need to talk about so that you can focus on what you want to accomplish. Agenda Minder stays out of your way with simple controls and a clean look. 
You can quickly add meetings and agenda items, capture the objective and any notes you need, and all of that will help everything go so much more smoothly. AgendaMinder lets you capture these topics for your meetings in one place, so you'll always be prepared for those tricky questions. You can easily send agenda items to everyone involved in your upcoming meeting and be confident that you can have a great meeting because you're prepared. Remember that meetings are only as good as their agendas. If you have any meetings, you owe it to yourself to check out AgendaMinder from Intranodal today. Just go to intranodal.xyz equal. And it's also on the Mac App Store. Thank you so much to AgendaMinder for their support of Less Than or Equal and Relay FM. I, I can't wait until somebody comes out with like a competing style guide of inclusive language. Like that's how I, I will know that I have succeeded at this project is when somebody attempts to compete with it, you know? Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective. Will you tell me a little bit more about, about that line of thinking? Cause I think most people think that competition is bad. Uh, I don't, but I mean, obviously you don't, at least in this case, will you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I think that, that competition uh, is great. Um, I am a little notorious for whenever like I see somebody writing about similar things, I consider them automatically an ally, like somebody to get to know and to invite to contribute to my projects and to promote online. Uh, because most of the things that, that I work on um, I work on them alone, honestly. Like I've been a freelancer for years. It's me at my computer, um, sometimes with one of my cats. Uh, and let me tell you, cats, not the best uh, coworkers no. you've ever had. No. Um, for one thing, their conversational skills are just, just not what I need to have <laughs> these conversations. They listen kind of well, though, depending upon the day. They do listen. They just not so much with the feedback. Yeah, that's true. Um, so getting to work with somebody else is always just kind of a pleasure for me. It's it's something that it's it's exciting. It's out of my normal space. It's great. Um, on top of that, though, when we're talking about inclusion in particular, uh, there are so many different uh, points of view out there in the world that it's impossible for one approach to provide an adequate resource for everybody. And I'm, I'm going into the style guide fully knowing that. Uh, we're being very specific about who this style guide is for, for just that reason. It's specifically for people who are creating media around technology. It's for people who are at startups writing blogs. It's for people who are writing technical uh, pieces um, or doing vlogs or doing uh, video tutorials about technology. Um, and we very consciously chose technology because we see um, the decisions being made in technology right now as being kind of outsized. The decision of how accessible an app is, for instance, determines whether a fifth of Americans will get to use it or not. So that, that seems a little uh, larger than just um, uh, the decision on a lifestyle blog or a travel blog. So 
I would love to see this sort of resource for those other industries, for somebody who's writing about travel or uh, about lifestyle topics, because it's not something that we're covering very intentionally, but it's not something that we're covering. So I really expect to see in the next two, three, four years, um, our quote unquote competition in other industries, because it is something that's so necessary. We're just not equipped to do it for everybody yet. Right. So how are you going to handle updates? So, uh, we've, we're doing what we're calling the first iteration with, with this version. Um, we're planning to release uh, probably every two years, not every one year, just because of um, our resources, um, an updated guide. Uh, but with the, the website and the API eventually, um, that will be able to keep up to date on a more regular basis. Um, we're also planning to uh, have like a, the blog that goes along with uh, our website and those uh, sorts of channels give us more opportunity to keep offering more information that doesn't fit strictly within the style guide. But we are putting resources into being able to update this information regularly because language changes. Uh, just just the the emojis that <laughs> we use regularly seem to change routinely let alone full-blown words yeah. um i i worry that i am starting to be one of the olds because i have to get somebody to explain emoji uh <laughs> to me pretty regularly uh-huh. like like i get that you know certain emojis mean certain things but um I, I haven't found a good emoji to English guide that right. stays up to date yet. Well, and it's also so far up to interpretation too. Like mm-hmm. um, there's an upside down smiley face. And I use that as like, I don't know, kind of a punctuation mark. That's like <laughs> ironic sarcasm type stuff. But I had a friend who was like, I don't know. Can you tell me what, what you mean by putting that at the end of this message to me? And I was like, nope. It just seemed like an upside down smiley face kind of thing. And, you know, I think that's a lot of it is we don't really Mm -hmm. fully understand ourselves always. Absolutely. So as as our language evolves, (laughs) we just need to keep our resources evolving with it. Yeah. And I'm really excited to see. I, I feel like there are the example I that comes to mind most easily for me is things around the transgender community and being transgender that we Mm -hmm. don't really have words for, especially to help, you know, cisgender people understand the experience. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of language that, uh, that I think is going to emerge in the next few years as societally, we start talking about, uh, being transgender and, and, and that kind of thing that, uh, we don't have right now. And I'm really excited to see where that goes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes within an individual community, there is certain language that we just don't hear about yet. So uh, I think cisgender is an amazing example of this. Um, 10 years ago, almost nobody was using terminology like that. Right. 
Um, but as we started having these visible discussions, uh, cisgender is, um, it's a neologism. It's um, it, kind of an invented term to be able to put a name to um, this part of the conversation. And we're, we're doing that in so many different communities at this point. There's so many new terms coming up that I'm, I'm very excited that we'll will honestly be kind of the the first style guide to tackle some of these terms. Um, for instance, there's there's a term um, it's in the transgender community called uh, a dead name. So it's it's a way to refer to um, a name used before transition. Uh, but if you go through any of the articles about, say, uh, Chelsea Manning, um, all of these reporters in mainstream publications are tripping over. So how do I refer to Chelsea Manning? What about uh, referring to the legal documents from before she, she fully transitioned to using the name Chelsea? Like, how do I even do that? And I don't have a good answer, but our editor is working on that problem and will have a suggestion, suggested style for us shortly. Which I, I am looking forward to because, yeah, and that way I can point journalists to it and say, hey, you know, this was a mistake you probably didn't know. But, hey, look at this resource. It's awesome. And mm -hmm. now, you know, the next time, you know, you're you're unaware of a thing, you can go over here and look it up and that will be a good thing for everybody. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So can we talk about, well, actually, was there anything else you wanted to talk about, about the Kickstarter or the Responsible Communication Style Guide? Uh, I think I think that's all the, the highlights. Uh, we're definitely still on Kickstarter through September 29th. Uh, and we appreciate not only people like backing us, but also helping us get the word out. So, So if you can't donate... Even even a even a tweet even a is tweet. greatly appreciated. Cool. So I was hoping I could talk to you about XOXO a little bit since we were Absolutely. both there and we didn't get a lot of time to talk. Absolutely. So what is your if you were telling someone who'd never heard of the conference, what would your explanation of it be? Uh, my my default is that it is a uh, conference and festival for independent creatives. Uh, which tells you almost nothing about what XOXO really is, but sort of gets across like the, the ideal audience for it, I think. Yeah. Um, the way that I kind of think of it in my head, though, is this is like spring break for all the people that I really wish that I knew better and who are doing amazing work and who are just so... Uh, willing to talk about like all the things going on in their work uh, that I just sort of get very excited and really enjoy that. It was such an amazing experience. So they have it, two pieces. Well, <laughs> okay. We'll just go with that. They have two pieces. So when you can go either to talks or well, talks and festival or just festival. In the talks, 
I've always watched, you know, maybe not all of the talks, but I've always watched the talks every year after, after XOXO comes out. So like past guests, Jonathan Mann has been, mm-hmm. um, has got up and talked about doing song a day and how, um, how his grandmother, uh, the impact that she had on his life. Um, uh, Rami Ishmael, I believe, uh, talked about video games and how like he taught the audience how to read Arabic, you know, mm-hmm. in 20 minutes, which is you know, um, at least like a rudimentary understanding and talked about like video games and how, how the language is represented in games. Um, mm-hmm. Gosh, I'm trying to think of other talks. So there's, there's a lot, right? There's the talks are, are incredible and intense. And then you can also be like I was and just kind of stay outside in the shade mm-hmm. and talk to people the whole time, which is, you know, I did a festival only pass. So there were food trucks and picnic tables and tabletop games. And, uh, we played balderdash and talked and it was such, they've done such a good job of making a, a profound, but fun, safe event mm-hmm. that, you know, and they're not doing it next year, which is incredibly sad. Hopefully they pick it up again. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite events because I meet people there who I would never meet anywhere else. Like it gives me a chance to see so many different things that I didn't even know existed, honestly. Um, I think that they do an incredibly good job of bringing in not only speakers, but they bring in uh, video games to demo, board games to demo, uh, videos, uh, podcasters, all sorts of stuff. So um, one of my one of my favorite uh, parts is the the story part of the festival, where it's podcasters and storytellers and other people doing. Um, projects around that sort of space. And I just uh, sat through probably five different, really different uh, presentations from all these different people. And now I have like four podcasts that I need to go listen to every single bit of the archives. (laughs) I've got all this other stuff. Like right after XOXO is definitely um, a heavy reading and listening and watching time for me. Yeah, it's, there are so many interesting people, so many mm-hmm. interesting people. And I, I, one of my shortcomings is that I have a very hard time going up to people I don't know and starting a conversation. Um, so I had a group of friends there and I did a lot of staying in my safety bubble. And now that I'm home, I'm like, oh, I really should have kind of pushed myself a little bit more should have I try not to use should have but I I really wish that I had pushed myself a little bit more and talked to more people because I'm seeing tweets go by and like oh I never got to talk with you and that was you know kind of sad but um hopefully I'll get another chance yeah and I the thing that I've also found about XOXO attendees is they tend to be very open people uh willing to talk first of all, like very transparently about their projects, but also like once you've sort of got an idea of who they are and you reach out to them online and say, oh, I was at XOXO, I didn't get a chance to talk to you, I would love to chat about this one thing. 
like every time I've had really good uh, responses to that. Cool. That's good to know. So did you have a takeaway that you could share, share with everybody about the festival? Um, so one of the interesting things this year, like every year winds up having kind of a theme, like it's always a little subtle, but this year, a lot of the speakers, a lot of the attendees were talking very, very clearly about the money they make from their projects, or in many cases, the money they don't make from their projects. Uh, so Gabby Dunn, who, uh, spoke Sunday morning, I believe, Um, she's done a very successful YouTube channel. She's worked at BuzzFeed. Uh, she's done all sorts of things, um, and has to wait tables, uh, to make ends meet on a regular basis. And like, she was very honest about that. You can have a million subscribers on YouTube and still work at Starbucks. And that's, a really weird discrepancy that I think we're only starting to really get about the internet right now is that you can be internet successful and not make a cent from it. And that's, that's kind of scary because we're, we're encouraging people to basically live their entire lives online in a lot of ways. Uh, But we're not, we don't have the financial footing for that to make sense for most people. And I don't know what the solution is to that. Um, Like, I don't, I've like, like we said before, I have died of exposure many times. Um, But it's really good that we're starting to have these conversations and we're starting to look at what does a sustainable internet culture really look like? What does, uh, what obligations do companies like BuzzFeed and YouTube have towards the people who create the content that make them successful? And I think that this is going to be a huge discussion for the next several years. But the insights that I've gotten at XOXO are going to guide how I think about this throughout that process. Yeah, it's it's hard being a a content creator on on the internet. It's just and it's hard being a writer on the internet, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, I am a technical writer. Like my, my bachelor's degree is in technical writing and nothing pays very well, you know? And it's like, right. you want me to come in and you want me to write all this stuff and learn a bunch of things and you don't want to pay me for it. And I don't know, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard. Um, yeah, and I think my takeaway was uh, something probably because I've been thinking about it a lot is just like the importance of support and community, and um, how how valuable it is to have people who support you and who you can support. Like that mm-hmm. that relationship is extremely valuable. Absolutely. So Thursday, how can people find you online? So uh, I'm at Thursday B on Twitter. Um, that's usually the easiest way to find me. I also have a blog at um, ThursdayBram.com. Uh, and then the Kickstarter is uh, currently ongoing. Uh, you can find it by looking for resp- the Responsible Communication Style Guide on Kickstarter. 
and yeah, that's that's everywhere that I'm on the internet right now. You can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you're looking for show notes, previous episodes, or have feedback, please go to relay.fm slash LTOE. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.